so uh, hello, Miss Rallage. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Hi, Mr. Linden. Um, I am extremely excited today because we have a, uh, a very special guest on the podcast today. It is President Joe, ba no, uh, we, we have uh, uh, the Dean of the Jewish Studies Department, former member of the uh, History Department, 100% a traitor. Um, we have uh, uh, Dr. Cody Bahir here with us. Hey, Cody, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Super excited to be here. Um, I think from, from now on, yeah, from now on, I should do Dr. Bahir, right? Because uh, we're being formal. Okay. Potentially, yes. Unless we want to okay. start going by Matt. But I don't think it makes sense for both of us to go by Matt. <laughs> I don't think that makes very much sense. Um, so I, I had a little question for you, um, because um, at least my answer to this question has to do with what we're talking about today. Um, if you could get a free trip for like a week to anywhere in the world, where would you want to go? Hmm. I think I would actually go to Japan. Okay. Because I've yeah. never been there, but a lot of the things I research have to do a lot with Japan. So it'd be nice to get that sort of on the ground experience. Yeah. That'd be awesome. That's awesome. My, my answer is a lot less intellectual, which is I want to go skiing in the Dolomites in Italy. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's awesome. That sounds amazing. Um, I, I think, well, I have a very hard time answering the question that I just posed to everyone else. Um, but uh, certainly up there on my list would be going to Taiwan. Um, it's uh, my dad is, is not Taiwanese or Chinese, but he was born there because my, my grandfather studied Chinese history. And back then, um, Americans weren't allowed on the mainland. So he studied in Taiwan. And I've just heard lots of wonderful stories. And I'm fascinated by it as a place. Mm. Um, but I suppose that ties in very, very nicely. It's almost as if I planned this question to do so uh, to our topic for today. Do you want to do you want to introduce the topic, Ms. Ravage? Yeah. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about the, <clears throat> the Taiwan and Chinese relationship. And you may be wondering, well, then why do you have the director of Jewish studies on your radio show today? <laughs> It's <laughs> because Dr. Bahir lived um, and worked in Taiwan for how long was that, Dr. Bahir? I was there six years and some change. Six years, yes. When I was, I think when I was interviewing you, you had just finished your work there, um, <clears throat> teaching um, and has quite a lot of experience and your partner is also from Taiwan. Um, and so we thought it would be interesting to have him on the show to talk a little bit about some of the things that have been going on. Um, there in recent months. Um, and then of course, most recently, the US has um, kind of pivoted military attention to the Pacific, um, which they have been talking about doing for quite some time, but most definitively now at the end of the war in Afghanistan. And recently the United States signed a nuclear agreement with Australia and Britain, um, which was a direct affront to China and the expansion of China's power in the South China Sea. Um, and, you know, as probably most of our listeners, most of our students are well aware, you know, China has been an economic powerhouse for quite some time. It has always been um, a concern of the United States and other global powers in the, in the world about this, um, about this power, but they're also becoming much more of a military powerhouse. Mm -hmm. And um, there's been some speculation that, you know, one of the first and perhaps most 
immediate pressing spots that they are eyeing and or looking at for future expansion um or maybe as they would say you know uh as already within their power was yeah reunification is the island of taiwan and an, an island a semi-sovereign nation about 100 miles off the coast of china mainland um the government's uh, the island's government has never actually been acknowledged by the Chinese government. Um, the current Chinese president, um, Xi Jinping, has stated that one of his administration's goal, goals is a one China, um, kind of reunifying some of these places such as Hong Kong and Taiwan into um, Taiwan. So we thought we would take a little bit of time today to understand the historical context of that. like not just like the bigger questions, like is there gonna be a military invasion and what does that mean? And why does the US, what is the US gonna do about that? But you know, like, what is this? How is this whole setup occurred? Um, Cause it's a kind of a fascinating historic history. Um, and we're gonna to look to Dr. Bahir to help us answer some of those questions. So I think without further ado, I will say hello and welcome to Historically Speaking, where we explore the history behind the stories in this week's news with me, Mr. Linden. And me, Ms. Ratledge. And this week with me, Dr. Bahir. Perfect. I didn't guess. I didn't prep him for that. He nailed it though. <laughs> um, so I, I think maybe a logical place to start here is um you know, we've, we've explained where Taiwan is in the world, but does, um, do you think you could give us a little bit of history, Dr. Bahir, on, on how we get to this situation where we have these two Chinas vying for uh, being called the real China, more or less? Uh, uh, would you mind starting us off with that? Yeah, of course. Um, it's probably not surprising to say it's complicated, but... For... <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> Until let's say around by this. That's a history teacher's favorite words. <laughs> <laughs> so until around let's say the 1700s, for the 10,000 years before that, Taiwan mm-hmm. was mainly populated by indigenous Aboriginal tribes um, who are Austronesian, related to people from Austronesia and actually the Philippines. Some scholars believe uh, Taiwan is the origination point of the Austronesian peoples. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But they were there for, they're still there, just not as many, of course. They're for around 10,000 years. Then when the Dutch came, actually, in the 1700s, yeah. with guns, they were able to overpower the population, which the Chinese before had never really shown a whole lot of interest in Taiwan. You know, it's 100 miles off the sea. It uh, gets hit by typhoons every year. It was sort of like this wild west area, um, <clears throat> populated by headhunting, literally, um, tribes that would keep the Chinese out every time they tried to do anything. So they're like, okay, it's over there. We don't really care. But then once the Dutch were able to actually establish a foothold in Taiwan with their guns, which they did mainly to secure easy trade routes with China, China's like, oh, this is a really good place. And um, started sending sort of unofficially um, a lot of settlers over there. And it became a big population, mainly in the city of Tainan uh, in southern Taiwan on the west coast, you know, facing China. 
And during the Ming Dynasty, there there was there was more immigration to Taiwan, though not a whole lot, just because of pirates and typhoons and these sorts of things. So not a huge population surge. But then during the Qing Dynasty, they were able to settle the west coast of Taiwan and northern Taiwan. They were never able to get all of Taiwan until so, Doctor Doctor here. Just just to clarify, the the Qing Dynasty. We're talking 1600s, the beginning of the Qing Dynasty. Ah, uh, yes, exactly. Okay, great. Thanks. So, mm. continue. Yeah. <laughs> so so you know Taiwan from you know Aboriginal hands to Dutch hands and the Spanish were there a little bit too up in the north then to Chinese hands, and after that to Japanese hands. It was under Japanese colonialism for 50 years. And Japanese colonialism was very different than European colonialism. They weren't there just to like extrapolate, you know, just to get stuff out of the place and leave. They really wanted to make the Taiwanese citizens Japanese citizens. But that ended in 1945 after World War II <clears throat> when it was handed to China. Like, and the Japanese were the first ones to really colonize all of Taiwan, and like the whole mm -hmm. island. They were actually able to do it pretty much. Is this also uh, when the name change happens, Doctor Pierre? Because because I know for for most of history, Taiwan is called Formosa, and then we get mm -hmm. a switch to Taiwan. Am I jumping the gun and saying this is around when that happens? Another complicated question because okay. like Formosa is supposedly like means like the the what is it like the the island the jeweled island or the blessed island in Portuguese. Okay. And nobody's really sure where the name Taiwan comes from. It's a debate. Oh, interesting. Is it named after one of the biggest tribes there, Paiwan, which is like Taiwan with a P? Is it um, derived from a Dutch word for the port from Tainan? So we're not exactly sure mm -hmm. when that occurs and where that comes from. So that's, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. So, so just to backtrack just a second. So to be clear, like when the Dutch originally arrived, which I'm assuming is sometime in the, what, 1600s? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So he said um, they're able to essentially pacify the the indigenous population by use of guns. Right. In, in, certain, that, areas. That, in certain areas, does that mean that they're that they're really committing? You know, is that is that like the kind of the annihilation of those populations, or do they are they working for them, or what happens? Because it sounds like there's obviously a switch to the extent that then the Han it's the Han Chinese. I my, my assumption. That, that go after that? Is it because there's less now, less indigenous peoples that are there or how is that? Well, part of it is also because China then later got guns. So they could kind mm -hmm. of do the same thing on a greater scale because they're closer. Mm -hmm. so it, it wasn't as like, let's say brutal as like what happened to the Native American population, at least at that time, mm -hmm. because there wasn't just like that huge uh, mobilization of settlers and uh, conquistadors and that sort of thing. So it's a much slower and not quite as brutal process, but it's, it, 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 it is similar though, unfortunately, to what happened here as well. And does Taiwan have any specific resources? Because it sounds like um, that were particularly uh, attractive to these colonizers. Actually, not that I know of. I think it was more just its location because it was mm -hmm. a really big stopping point um, to China and like somewhere else to sort of um, like for China, it's like a nice satellite to have there on your outskirts outside your border. And for the Europeans, it was great. It was like the stop that they could have to set their base and the trade routes there. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not aware of any particular, you know, mineral wealth or anything like that. And I think that's also part of the reason why China wasn't super interested for a long time, right? They didn't need well-positioned trade routes to themselves the way that the Europeans did. Right, exactly. <clears throat> so we get to 1945, the Japanese are ousted from uh, not only Taiwan, but from China itself, where they had occupied much of the country. And there's well, going to be some chaos. To be clear, wait, we're just to put it in the context there, right? This is yeah. the end of World War II. The Japanese yes. <laughs> lose the war, right? And they are ultimately, they are, they are, their military is completely taken away. They have no capacity to occupy any other nation. In fact, they are occupied by the Americans. So any former kind of colonial outposts has been taken away from them. And because China was on the side of the allies, ultimately they are given some of the kind of quote unquote properties of the Japanese. Right. It, yes. it should be noted like what China we're talking about at this Yes, point. I was about to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, and this also goes back again, you know, during the Chinese Civil War, after the Qing Dynasty was overthrown originally by the KMT, the Kuomintang, the Chinese nationalists. That's, this is before the Chinese Civil War. And then the Chinese Civil War is post that between the communists with Mao Zedong and the nationalist party, the Kuomintang, the KMT. And there's sort of an interesting dynamic where we have this civil war between the, the nationalist party and the, uh, the communists, and then they sort of put it on pause when the Japanese invade um, and work together during the war. Um, it's a very uneasy alliance. The leader of the, the Kuomintang, Chiang Kai-shek, um, is maybe the most anti-communist person I can think of in history. <laughs> um, uh, he also, I, I had a professor in college who said he might be responsible for killing more communists than anyone in history, which is sort of an interesting to th thing to think of. Um, but, uh, you know, he's sort of a military dictator, really, but um, he makes an alliance after being kidnapped and forced to do this, actually, uh, with the communists for the duration of the war. But when the war ends, a significantly weakened nationalist party who has been fighting Japan, which was a superior military for a long time, now has to sort of resume the civil war with the communists. Yeah, and it didn't go well for them. No. <laughs> they, they ultimately <laughs> lost. But but when you know World War II ended, that's who Taiwan was handed over to officially was to yes. like the Republic of China, which are the nationals, not the People's Republic of China. Like mm -hmm. the PRC and the ROC, of course, are are the two parties that we're talking about. Like KMT, the nationalists are the ROC, Republic of China. The communists are the PRC, the People's Republic of China. Mm -hmm. And of course, when the ROC, the nationalists lost essentially the war to the communists, they fled to Taiwan, taking a lot of stuff with them, by the way. Yes. And a lot of people with them, too. Yeah. So, yeah, a few million people with them all over in, at one time. And then it becomes even more interesting because you already had you know, a lot of Chinese people living there for a couple hundred years now. And you have this divide between the Aboriginal population and the Chinese. But then there's this new mainlander influx after the war of you know, more Chinese people coming. And then there's this like third identity now in Taiwanese culture of the mainlander Chinese, then the Chinese Taiwanese, and then the Aboriginals. And mm -hmm. they're all not so, you know, such big fans of each other at this time for obvious reasons. 
Like even like the Taiwanese, the Chinese Taiwanese, the Han Taiwanese view these mainlanders as outsiders. They're like you're not really Taiwanese. You're coming from the mainland. We've been here for a couple hundred years, and they mainly spoke different kinds of Chinese too. I want to say dialect. Like I'm not a linguist, but you know, there's a difference between a dialect and a language, and there is like a debate: are the different kinds of Chinese dialects or languages? Mm-hmm. Um, and like the Fujian province um, kind of Chinese, Minan, is what is mainly was mainly spoken in Taiwan by the people, the Han Chinese who were there, which we now call Taiwanese. You know, Taiwanese is a Ch- dialect or language of Chinese. Mm-hmm. The, the, the um, people came over after World War II, the mainlanders mainly spoke Mandarin. Mm-hmm. So and that was another issue too. So you have all these different languages. And there's not one Aboriginal language either. There's, you know, right. all sorts of Aboriginal languages. So even though Taiwan is super small um, relatively to America, it's really diverse. And that kind of diversity gets overlooked a lot. But the government posts the, the well, this is 1949, essentially, when this happens, right? When the fall, when the communists win in China and then the Chiang Kai-shek and, and the, the nationalists, the mainlanders move to Taiwan. The government is going to be kind of in the 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 lens of what what they expected from mainland China, or are they going to adopt more of the Taiwanese Chinese or the or the Aboriginal? They saw Taiwan is just like this is a sort of truck stop. We're going to retake the mainland. They didn't really hmm. care about Taiwan at first, especially they didn't really even invest so much in Taiwan itself. They were all just like they went to Taiwan just to be able to muster their forces eventually and retake the Chinese mainland, which never happened. So in the earlier year, earliest years of Taiwan, they didn't really care about Taiwan. Like we're Chinese. This is the Republic of China. It's not Taiwan. We don't care. That's why it's still the official name. And then there was a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment there too, because while the Japanese had been there, like they outlawed the, the language, the speaking the language of Taiwanese. They outlawed speaking Aboriginal language and try to make everybody speak Japanese. And once the mainlanders come over again, they do the same thing with Mandarin. Like, no, no Japanese, no Taiwanese, no Aboriginal languages, only Mandarin. So. And meanwhile, is the People's Republic of China, again, the communists in mainland China, are they trying to take Taiwan back? Or are they kind of like, look, good riddance. You folks were a pain in our side anyways. Um, you guys, you all can hang out. I mean, initially, obviously, we know now there is a, a desire to reunify but what was the initial response there for a while they were like there's i i think i forget the name of the island but there's one island really close to, to mainland china way closer than taiwan that is actually still officially part of taiwan because they were still battling for a while there yeah there was sort of a sense of waiting for the other shoe to drop as i understand like that both sides were sort of waiting for the invasion to happen but it just kind of get pushed back and got pushed back but th- there was something that you said that I think is is worth noting here. Um, you were saying that the the Republic of China, the folks in Taiwan, viewed it that they were not just the rightful government of of Taiwan where they were, or maybe not even the rightful government of Taiwan in the long term, but that they were the rightful government of all of China. Mm-hmm. Is there a point at which they stop believing that, or do we still today have the case where the Taiwanese government believes that they are the rightful leaders of all of China? I don't think that party would say that out loud. Okay. <laughs> okay. But I think within the KMT, which, you know, the Republic of China government, that some, especially of the earlier generation, still have that belief. Okay. 
and that, that's so that police say, held on for a long time, even officially. Even though now it's like it's it's not really stated that way. Okay, so you know we we have the the People's Republic of China, who controls most of China, believing that Taiwan is rightfully part of China and that they should they are the rightful government there. And then we maybe have a subcurrent of the opposite thing happening from from Taiwan, but not an official stance that that's the case. At that time, yes, but not now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's really interesting because you know the government of Taiwan, like the ROC, who is the one who fought the communists, <clears throat> nowadays are the ones who are much closer to China than the more native party, populist party, the DPP. Right. So, oh, so yeah. we actually have the the springing up of different political groups here. Right, because initially the the Kuomintang, the the nationalists, are going to be uh, running a one party state. Is that right? For a long time, till the nineteen eighties, uh, Taiwan was even under yeah. martial law. When Taiwan switched from martial law to like when they opened up and stopped to martial law, they were the country under martial law longer than any other country in history. Wow. And later to be wow. beaten by Syria, actually. Oh, okay. Can you uh, describe what is martial law just for those that don't know? So military law, you essentially have no rights. The military are the police. Um, they are the courts. Um, they can essentially do what they want with you, depending more on your social status, I would say, is how things are actually run and your connections versus your legal status. It's like the rule of men versus the rule of law. Right. I always think of it as like in the United States, we talk about habeas corpus is so important. And the idea that in martial law, habeas corpus, corpus is the idea that you can't be thrown in jail unless you know why you're thrown in jail. Right. Like you have to have something accused against you. And martial law is essentially saying, well, you could really be in jail or executed or whatever accused for anything. There, is, there doesn't have to be reasonable cause. Um, yeah. And you don't have to be told what it, the reason And you don't have to be told either. precisely. Yeah. You could just be forever. Right. And, and we have Chiang Kai-shek during this time is not running for re-election, right? He is, he's in charge and then it transitions to, to his son, right? It's essentially like a hereditary thing um, until, as you said, the, the late 1980s. So 40 years of martial law. Um, uh, during, during this period, what is the U.S.'s relationship to, to Taiwan? Well, for a long time, U.S. recognized the Republic of China, the nationalist government in Taiwan as the actual, as China. You are the real okay. China. And the other China, they are, they're an illegitimate government because they're communists. And, you know, this is the Cold right. War. Cold War yeah. Of course, the communists are illegitimate. It goes without saying from America's perspective at that time. And that changed, of course, when, you know, Richard Nixon sort of opened up China and established relationships with China and America recognized that government as the official government of China. And Taiwan kind of did that to themselves in a way, the Taiwanese government, not the people, by still calling themselves the Republic of China versus let's, let's, let, let's, let's let go of that China connection and become Taiwanese and become our own sort of place while holding on to that dream of retaking the mainland and that we're the real Chinese government has sort of brought them somewhat into the predicament that we are today, in my opinion. Because, you know, mm. People's Republic of China have never had sovereignty over Taiwan for a single millisecond. Taiwan has mm -hmm. never been part of the People's Republic of China, not even for like a single breath. Mm -hmm. It was part of like 
the Qing Dynasty. It was part of the Republic of China, but never the People's Republic of China. So them holding on to that Chinese connection is sort of, you know, given some credence to China's rhetoric about China, you know, Taiwan is ours. So. Totally. Yeah, I think it's super fascinating. When I realized that the United States did not actually recognize Taiwan, I thought I, that 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 fact really shocked me because I had always been under the assumption, you know, that they were two separate, that Taiwan felt it was a separate entity in a separate country, right? And it was an autonomous country and that China had always wanted Taiwan to return. But actually it's what you're saying, like the Taiwanese had actually said, no, we are the rightful, we are the rightful empower, you know, power holders of mainland China. And so when in the seventies, when Nixon goes and is like, okay, well, this has been awkward. We've basically not been communicating with China who were our allies during World War II, by the way. And now we've had no communication, no diplomatic relationship with them for 20 plus years. Now is the time to finally open this door. Well, then ultimately the United States and everyone, every other nation had to choose. They couldn't, they could not, um, you know, look at both and acknowledge both equally as if they're on equal footing, you had to choose one or the other. Yeah. And around the same time, right, where we're having the switch of the U.S. allegiance, we're coming out of martial law, and we have emergence of new political parties, right, because for the first time that's going to be legal uh, to happen. And so you mentioned that there were some parties that are going to emerge to the to the you know, sort of, I, I guess it's the left of the, the Kuomintang, um, at least ones who are going to be less aligned with, with China. Right. I don't know if I'd call them left. Um, okay. Because in some ways they're more right, you know, in different okay. ways, like the, it doesn't translate perfectly, those, those kind of categories. But okay. yeah, yeah, the DPP, the Democratic um, Progressive Party of Taiwan, they are essentially kind of a populist party who are against really having anything to do with, with identifying with China. Hmm. And they won an election. Um, I would have to look up the first time, I believe it was either in the late 80s or, or early 90s. And after that, and then they lost the next election and didn't lose and didn't win again until just a couple election cycles ago. Hmm. And now we have the, Taiwan's current president is from the DPP, the Populist Progressive Party, uh, Tsai Ing-wen. Um, and she's actually an academic with a PhD and a cat lover and a woman, uh, one of the few female presidents, like not just in the world, but especially in Asia. Mm-hmm. And that has really increased tensions because she is not willing to sort of, I don't want to use the word counto, but sort of, you know, just talk the talk that is super bland. Oh, yeah, we're like, the KMT before, even if they wouldn't say we're part of China, when once they sort of lessened their rhetoric about being the rightful government of China, they where the DPP, the Progressive Party, really sort of pushes those bounds and says things that China then sort of, you know, puts through their media, they get everybody mad on WeChat and through all their TV shows that, oh my God, Taiwan is really saying that they are their own country, even though they're not, she doesn't really articulate it that much, but by the fact that she won't back down or sort of say the things that China wants to hear. Mm. 
Well, I think that's kind of a perfect segue for talking about the situation as it stands today, which, um, you know, is someone over here in the Western hemisphere, right? Like it's kind of like, well, why, why concern ourselves with this? What is the big issue? Obviously it's extraordinarily important, but at the same point in time, like, what does this mean for a larger global perspective? Um, and, uh, you know, at least from everything that I have read and paid attention to, there have been a lot of kind of grumblings, discussions of, well, you know, could China, could mainland China potentially militarily try to take over Taiwan? And what does that, if they do, you know, does that start some sort of global situation given that, uh, the United States and many other European nations don't actually recognize Taiwan, but at the same point in time, it would be extraordinarily problematic to say, oh, that's okay, China, you can do that. You can, you can go in and, and invade and we're just kind of going to sit here. I mean, not that we haven't done that before we have, um, but we're, we're putting up, we're, we're showing a lot of muscle at this point um, that we're not going to let that happen in the Pacific and other nations too. Again, most notably Australia and Great Britain most recently. But um, so I don't know, I guess this is a question for you, Dr. Bray here, like, not that you could predict this, but what do you sense is is really happening or is going to happen on the ground? Um, yeah, that's something, of course, I worry about actually a lot. It's sort of like, you know, somebody who loves Taiwan or thinks like maybe retire there, you know, and has, you know, family there I'm married into. There's kind of a black cloud. You're always worried about what's going to happen with the China situation. And when I was in China, it was interesting to hear the rhetoric from the people when I'd say, oh, yeah, I live in Taiwan because, you know, I was just visiting China for a conference for a couple of weeks. And, you know, from taxi drivers to people working in restaurants, to the hotel, they're like, oh, yeah, China will, you know, will take Taiwan, but it will be nonviolent. That was all the people said. And I really do think that they believe that, that it would just be sort of like this natural reunion between the two countries Mm -hmm. through the China sphere. That's not the rhetoric, of course, that the communist government sort of gives. They don't really necessarily say we are going to, you know, come and invade you right now, but they always kind of, that's an undertone of everything they say. And I do think that is a possibility, especially with Xi Jinping. Depends how much he really feels like he needs Taiwan to sort of promote or show you know display the power of his current government so like i worry that if there's some sort of crisis where then he feels that he needs to unite the country behind him like oh this is a perfect opportunity to go ahead and let's go ahead and invade taiwan this will fix all of our propaganda problems right interesting i mean not that hong kong is the same at all right they're dramatically different situations but we've already seen over the past two years, um, some of the things that have, you know, dissidents being thrown in jail, the shutdown of protests, the, you know, the, the extraction of all autonomy of the region, um, that has not, there is no two, right? It's become one. Um, and so I think he's showed his hand a bit in that situation. Yeah, this is sort of, you know, manufacturing a, a convenient en- enemy right? Dipping back into the historical well to say, you know, we got these people who really should be just like us. And it's always been that way. And if there's something going wrong, as you said, it's a convenient way to, uh, to turn it on in other, right? To, to have an other to take it out on. 
Right. Are, are the from the Taiwanese perspective, does it does it seem to you um, that they or what is it? What is your perception of what they feel about the situation? Not not necessarily like are they okay with a potential invasion or or return? Although it sounds like maybe that that would be okay for some people. But you know, have they started begun making alliances? Like what? How are they preparing for this? Taiwan tries to make alliances, but every few years, and one of the few countries that does recognize Taiwan sort of flips sides and recognizes China. Like I remember when I, when I was there, it happens to a couple of South American and African countries who had recognized Taiwan before and then switched over to China. And Taiwan did watch what happened in Hong Kong. That's what everybody was always talking about there, because of like the Chinese rhetoric of you know we'll we'll do a peaceful unification, you'll be sort of independent minus like military wise. You keep your own currency, you keep your own laws, but you're just part of China. And we see that's the rhetoric that, you know, was given to Hong Kong and it's obviously not what played out. And there are surveys every few years about Taiwanese people's identity. Do you identify as more like a, a Chinese Taiwanese or do you identify as Taiwanese? It's like its own thing. And increasingly it's Taiwanese as its own thing. That is the trend that people are feeling more Taiwan, more connected to Taiwan and less connected to um, China. And something that's interesting, like when I was doing my my dissertation on Chinese history, like or Taiwanese Buddhism, and I was looking into Taiwanese history. I'd ask my wife some questions about things, and she'd be like, "I I never knew that because when I was a kid, they only taught us ta Chinese geography and history." And that's a trend that's changing, where like Taiwan is seen as its own place, independent of China, in the schools and in people's identities as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In 2014, you had something similar to what happened with Hong Kong with the protests, but in Taiwan, because then the nationalists were the ones in charge, the ones who you know came from China originally. They were the party that were in charge of the government. And the president of the time, Ma Ying-jeou, um, made a trade agreement with China that would have like opened up a lot more uh, connections between China and Taiwan culturally, economically. And he did this behind closed doors. And then when it came out that he did it, the country went ballistic. There were protests all over Taiwan called like the Sunflower Movement to protest like the increasing these ties with China um, without consulting the people themselves first, doing this sort of like a closed door thing. And honestly, I think that's one of the reasons why they then lost power. And now we have the progressive party at the ones who are in power now because of that sort of fumble by the KMT. Interesting. So I think that leaves us in a, uh, an interesting and suspenseful position, right? Uh, where we have this question of whether China will take more aggressive action and uh, what Taiwan's recourse will be if that does indeed come to pass. But thank you so much, Dr. Bahir, for sharing your abundant wisdom on this topic. Um, really uh, uh, appreciate all the, all the nuance and, and interesting stuff that you brought to this. Yeah, thank you both. Yeah. This was awesome. I feel like I learned so much and um, I think this is the perfect type of situation that, but for understanding the underlying historical commentary and references, everything, it, it's impossible to, to get what is actually going right. on in the current state. Um, so I really appreciate everything you brought to the conversation today. And um, absolutely. I reminder to listeners, if you have, 
Oh, okay. sorry. I, I was just going to say, I almost forgive you for leaving the history department. Oh, um, I, I almost appreciate that. <laughs> I, I was going to say, this demonstrates to me all the more reason why you should be in the history department still, yeah. um, but that's okay. Um, I was just going to say that, you know, a reminder to anyone that's listening, if you have topics that you want us to explore or uh, talk about or and or other teachers that you want us to bring on the podcast, please let us know. We are always, we are all ears. Yes. I uh, where's your not, pun on that? You should have some sort of pun, Mr. Linden. I, don't know. I mean, if I was truly Awkward all joke. ears, it would be challenging to speak. <laughs> Unless okay, I'm somehow vibrating two ears next to each other. Like have a great sort of week. I'm gonna cut him off. Now vocal he's, cords. he's done. He's done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. thank you so much. Thank you. All right. See you next time. See you, Dr. Okay. Beer. See you, Miss Rallage. Bye.